This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. We've recently released a brand new gift set. The gift set contains a 25cl bottle of mead, and you have the choice from three flavours, including our brand new spiced mead. As well as that, you get a small rustic drinking horn, and both are displayed in a nice little gift box. So head over to the website, hornsofodin.com, to grab yourself one. Also, keep an eye out, as we're going to be adding more items and gift sets over the next month. On top of that, we give listeners of the podcast a bonus 10% off with a discount code HORNS10. So remember to use the code HORNS10 at checkout. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. This time we are joined by Vicky Mikaelsen uh, uh, from Norway. Uh, Vicky is a uh, um, historian and a World Heritage Coordinator for um, the municipality of Nordotten in Norway, and you're also uh, one of the... Uh, primary people behind uh, the festival Midgardsblot that takes place um, at the historical site Bora in um, southeastern-ish Norway, uh, close to Horten, south of Oslo. So welcome, Miki. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> so how, how are you? Let's start with some formalities. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, it's the weekend, so it's some time to relax. But uh, yeah, this whole situation going on in the world right now is pretty strange, both for the festival and what I do as my day job. So it's strange times. Um, and it's strange not having Midgarsblut this year. Uh, but we're hoping things will change for next year so that everybody can get back up on their feet. So, I mean, how does it affect your, your day job? I know you said you work for the uh, World Heritage I guess with a lot of sites have been closed down, it can't be easy. Yeah, it's been it's been difficult. Uh, maybe not. My job is probably not the one who's been affected the most, uh, but I I can feel it with that. You know, all the meetings are online. Uh, lots of travels are cancelled. Uh, things are not just working as they used to. So things takes a lot of more time. Um, but, you know, for museums and sites, uh, at first everything was closed down and then during summer, everybody started traveling within Norway. So there were actually, um, um, visitor records <laughs> at the local museums because people were actually traveling in Norway. So that was nice. So that was rather unexpected, but very welcome. I bet. Yeah, of course. I think that's, that's <laughs> one thing that most countries will be having is, tourism within itself i know within the uk obviously a lot of people have just been you know going on holiday within the uk which must be which you know which will be good for local businesses local hotels bnbs that kind of thing yeah and i think it's uh for a lot of people i think local history can be a lot of, a lot more exotic than you think because you don't really sometimes you know the history of egypt more than you know your own local history and i think this is a brilliant chance to actually know what's going on in your town. And like, I'm working with a uh, world heritage because Nutodden uh, got on the UNESCO's world heritage list um, 
in 2015 for their industrial history. And a lot of people, they just walk by all the beautiful factories and and places here and know nothing about them. And when they start hearing the stories behind, they're quite impressed. And and all of a sudden, they look upon their own uh, town very differently. And I think that's what's happening with Midgarsblut as well. And and Horten and Borre and, you know, people knowing the local history and which is the Viking history and then uh, seeing, you know, people pouring in from all over the world who's really excited uh, to learn about Horten and Borre. So yeah. it can be very exciting, uh, exciting and exotic just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, and this, this is one of the interesting things. I, I think a lot of Scandinavians and probably, you know, especially those of us who are either in sort of like the, the, the field or or have a personal interest, we are you know very familiar with uh, Bora and and uh, the Midgard Center, um, the, the the little uh, museum there, right? Um, but what I've heard is that uh, after you guys put on the festival, all of a sudden it's getting a lot of international attention as well, which is yeah. well deserved too. I mean, it's a it's a great little place. Yeah, uh, yeah. We really changed that because they had a hard time getting international visitors coming over, and uh, and we kind of loosened that up. So the museum, they experienced lots of uh, new people coming over there that hasn't been there before, and I can I can see it here in uh, Telemark where I live. It's a hour and a uh, one hour and a half drive to Horten from Nutoden where I live. Uh, and um, we have Norway's biggest stave church in Nutoden. And uh, I see a lot of black clad people <laughs> more than before. <laughs> some, some of the people uh, working at the stave church are a bit worried. <laughs> well, as long as you don't come with torches, it's probably going to be fine, right? <laughs> and I try to calm them down, like, no, no, this is good. <laughs> this is a good development. <laughs> It is. And, and I think, um, you know, the Viking Age um, and the stories about the Viking Age, they pop up in the most unexpected places, like this example here. But the Viking Age has been used so many times for branding. And it has, you know, in times of crisis, you kind of look back and then you pick up something old and make something new, you know, for the future. So I think what we see is this immense interest in the Viking Age. I mean, the world is in a, in, in a crisis right now with climate, with lots of things going on. But, you know, we can learn something from the past. So we look to the past and, and we pick something there that feels meaningful and, and we use it in, yeah. in real time and then create a path to the future. And I think that's, um, that has happened so many times before. And not always with a good result. I mean, the Nazis did that <laughs> too yeah. during Second World War. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why Viking history has been so difficult in Norway since the Second World War. Because yeah. they kind of took the Viking Age and it has been untouchable since. And uh, And I think that has been at the back of many people's head when we started up Midgarsblut. Because... At Borre, um, the Nazi Norwegian Nazi organizations had their biggest meetings, uh, uh, where we actually have the festival. Mm. Uh, so it was a bit okay. What's going on right now? Uh, but everything right. is calm now. They know where we stand and yeah. that we're not 
going in that direction. But I think this summer they've had a very interesting exhibition at the Midgard Viking Center telling that story about the Norwegian Nazism uh, also taking place at Buda. And it's, but I mean, Nor- Norway also has sort of like a, you know, compared to, well, I mean, maybe this is a stretch. I don't know. Like, it, of course, the black metal uh, uh, incidents mm. uh, that we also alluded to a little earlier <laughs> with, uh, with the uh, burning uh, state churches and murders and also mixing in Nazi ideology um back in the 90s i mean that, that is also a little present i guess for for a lot of people so yeah so seeing a bunch of black clad people and the heavy metal and then the, the viking stuff yeah what's but, going on I mean, <laughs> yeah but obviously that that is not what's going on no no and that's a good thing <laughs> that people are uh, really pleased we have so much support from the uh, local community and from the local politicians and the regional politicians and uh, a lot of universities are really impressed with what's going on and find it really interesting. So at the moment, there's two really big research projects going on where Midgarsbrot is one of the cases because they see, this, they see that there's something new going on here and also mm-hmm. how we involve a lot of different people in creating the festival, that we are not just putting on bands and selling beer but we are making a lot of cultural activities too, as with the seminars that I'm running um, and, and arts and crafts and, and games and whatever. You know, we try to, it's like when you, a traditional, you think that if you have an interest in history, you must sit down and read the books, but uh, his, uh, an interest in history can take on so many forms and and that's what we see at Midgarsbrot. Some use the interest in music or spirituality or tattoos or art or comics or whatever. But everybody has in common that they have like this uh, interest in the past. And I think that's really exciting But I c- because I think the flat or the, um, the usual way of telling history can be a bit flat and one-dimensional. It, it lacks texture, so to speak. And I think if we co-tell or co-create history, you can access interpretations that you would never have thought of if you haven't uh, come at it from a different direction. It's like when Einar Selvik, uh, Selvik from Vadruna talks about music and how, uh, you know, because he knows the instrument so well and so intimately, he can actually say something about music and the past that wouldn't have been possible if you were only an academic, you know, reading the books. So, so, the, so the crafts coming from elsewhere, uh, the professional crafts that people are doing in, in so many ways, they can add something to the storytelling of the past. And I think that's really interesting and important. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's living it and experiencing it. I think you learn something on another dimension from reading it from a book. And I think it's important to to do that as well because – you know, you if you have something in your hands and you do it, you you may unlock something that you necessarily wouldn't see just in text. You know, having it there and, and playing around with it. I think Mateus, you said before about the shields and maybe that they weren't used defensively but more offensively, yeah. and that's something that you wouldn't yeah. really know without picking one up, holding it, feeling it, and, and trying yeah, it out exactly, and trying it, and then you learn <laughs> something. And like you say with Ina with the music, him you know him playing it and learning it and, and living it then suddenly you get a different uh, perspective on it. Mm. 
And see, no, I, I agree completely. And, and we can sort of re- relate this to the very simple realization. Like if you say you're really interested in Norwegian history and you read a bunch of books about Norway, um, but you're not from Norway, you, you might be from, from England or somewhere. And then you take a trip to Norway and then you, you, you travel around and then you see the sites that were mentioned in your, uh, that history book you were reading. And then all of a sudden that adds a new context. I mean, it's, it's that simple sometimes, right? And this is, um, sadly something that, uh, a lot of people in our field as academics, they forget. A lot of there's there's a little too much armchairing around here. <laughs> People are just sitting there reading their books and forgetting about. Well, no, but well, it is, it and it's like I. But but it's like acknowledging that the different uh, strategies to learning about history have its own value, and I think that's important because uh, my I, I have a master's in Viking studies, and um, but it's interdisciplinary, so it's not just history, or it's it's all the disciplines focusing on Viking and medieval history. And um, uh, in the middle of doing that, I, I went to Cambridge and I stayed for half a year. Um, and I uh, did lots of groups, uh, study groups with students from Cambridge who are extremely clever and very, um, they are singling things out. You know, they're going in depth and they are really good at what they do. And they know they Latin and Old Norse and they are really good at so many things that I was not. Um, but at the same time, when we were in the study groups, I could ask completely different questions than they could. So, mm. so, and that, and my professor, uh, Rosamond McKittrick, she was very pleased with that because uh, uh, it was something that she didn't see. So even though I didn't have the in-depth, maybe, that the others had, I had uh, the overview. And when, you, when we were brought together as a group, that really worked out. Because then you yeah. could start discussing things a bit differently. And I think that's what's happening at Midgarsbrook, that we are co-creating or co-exploring maybe, co-exploring history. And I think that has a value of its own. Absolutely. No, I, I think you're totally right. And I, I think maybe one of the reasons that we agree so much on this is that I, my, I also come from a very interdisciplinary background yeah. <laughs> with like history, archaeology, philology, and so yes. on. And and I think you're totally right. Um, sometimes it's also more what's needed than 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 somebody just picking at a at a old Norse word for for ten years. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes we need to ask more broader questions and 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 try to uh, you know see how we can. Come combine uh, uh, different knowledge fields. And and yeah, no, that, that's exactly what happens at Midgasblod. I mean, you can go to, a, uh, you, you can go through a little forest that has uh, these uh, uh, wonderful sort of like scary uh, installations, right? Little heavy metal installations. Then you, then you come to a Viking market. Uh, then you can go to, uh, to, to sit and listen to a professor uh, talk at, at the seminary series that you have. And then you can go get the, um, you know, some roasted pig's meat and and, and get drunk. <laughs> Shit in front of the stage, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, that sounds like Valhut to me. Mm. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds brilliant. Yeah, it is. No, I, and also, you know, Midgarsblut is, is, um, is all about metal too. I remember mm. I, um, after i think it was last year after the seminars i uh i hurried up to um uh, to one of our venues because i wanted to see uh the icelandic uh, black me- uh, death metal band uh, natral 
And I came in there. I was like, oh, did I make it? And they were on stage. And I was like, yay. And then this young guy came up to me. Do you like death metal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now you're even cooler. I thought you were just into the, ac <laughs> the academics. <laughs> but, I think, but I think that's what's special about Midgarsbrook too, that it's not, it's not only a Viking history festival. We're not all serious. We like to just headbang and have a drink and have a good time. And and for me, metal has been so important since I was like 12 years old. But but the funny thing is that it kind of started with a bit of Viking metal because we have this Norwegian band, TNT. And the, uh, one of their first albums was uh, named Knights of the New Thunder with a Viking helmet on front and all that. And um, for, somehow the Viking Age has been kind of seeping into my life from here <laughs> and there. And, and all of a sudden I was studying it. It was uh, most unexpected. And then along, a, a, lo a lot uh, of years later, Midgarsbrot came along with my friend Runa, who is uh, Runa Strindin, who is the, the boss and the founder okay. of Midgarsbrot. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I can completely attest to, to what you just said because, you know, probably five years ago i was just a, a plumber you know going out working five days a week you know fit, fit, fitting bathrooms fitting boilers that kind of thing and then somehow i i ended up with a cow horn a, a, a car <laughs> i carved it and made a drinking horn and you know five years later i've got a business making clothing and that's awesome and we sell, we're selling mead and beer and everything and it's like how the fuck did this happen and then you know I've got I've got a podcast with a you know a doctor of Nordic studies and I'm like what where what happened in the last five years? Oh, that's the beauty of it. The, oh, the I love that. I really love that. I, I I can't say it's the same for me though. I I, uh, I kind of planned it. Uh, where I'm at. I think I think you know the the the. the like it was definitely in high school, and I was like, How? "I want to study Viking shit at the university." And then it was just like to figure out the way and how and all that stuff. And then I took a detour somewhere else, and you know, but but it ended up here anyway. So yeah, I think I must have had an interest in it to some degree because we ended up at the Jorvik Viking Festival, which is where I actually yeah. bought the first. I, I bought a horn from a. We were looking around, and I, I was like, "I want a I want a drinking horn." Because I was that I was that typical kind of guy that was there i'm like oh, i want a drinking horn um and we were looking around and i found one and we bought it and then i got it home and i realized it it was pretty much just a raw horn it hadn't been cleaned inside or anything so i was like hmm i'm gonna i'm gonna carve it i'm gonna you know line it with beeswax and, and that kind of thing and then i ended up a friend saw it and he wanted one so i made one for him and it snowballed from there into a into a business but it's kind of like all the, the things that could have happened differently and I just wouldn't have ended up here. You know, if we, if I'd have bought a horn from somebody else that was finished and ready to drink from that, then, you know, I probably wouldn't have done anything with it. And it's just these, these weird, you know, turns. If I, if I had turned left rather than right, mm. I could just be, exactly. Yeah. I could not be here. It could be just a little mm. plumber somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I think it's definitely interesting the, you know, the, the paths that we take and, and, you know, I don't believe in necessarily believe in fate or having like a path sort out, but I do think it's weird how, you know, it's it, this happened and the way you know the way that it kind of grew, grew from 
what was just a an interest into pretty much becoming my mm. my whole life. Mm. No, it's like everything is finally coming together, and it's like with me and Runa, who is we've known each other for I don't know ten, twelve, fifteen years. I've I've lost count, but um, she was always doing these synth festivals, or uh, and then she worked for Inferno for a bit, and I liked metal, and I liked synth a bit, and we had a lot of the same preferences, and we we went to this thing in Norway called Oslo called Gotham Nights. And, you know, we had so much things in common and, and we never understood why we didn't know each other before because we happened to know each other much later. And then we had kids and we lost contact for a bit. And then all of a sudden, Runa said, oh, I'm starting up this new festival called Eit Siva Blut uh, to commemorate the 200 years uh, of Norway's constitution. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Uh, so you're doing Viking stuff now? <laughs> it's, uh, I was a bit surprised. <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then she went up and did that. It was a huge success. And I, and I was supposed to come. But then uh, Leibach, which is one of my favorite uh, bands around, they played uh, the Olav Tryggvason opera as a Leibach thingy in Oslo that same weekend that Edsiva Blut was. So I said to her, no, I can't come. I need to see Leibach do Olav Tryggvason. <laughs> Uh, so it was Viking shit that made me not go. <laughs> and then that's pretty badass. It is. It Leibach is. It's so, <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. It was really cool. <laughs> Completely crazy. And um, but then Aitsiva uh, Blut was a success, but she couldn't continue there. So so she was looking for a new uh, location and ended up in Borre uh, in Westfall. And then the first year, she said, "You should come and um, and do some work with me." And she knew I'd worked at museums and done lots of stuff, both Vikings and other stuff. And and she asked me, can't you come and do something for children? So that was the first thing I did the first year. And then everything just expanded. And eventually I became one of the, well, core members of the festival and runs the seminars. So I've kind of grown into the festival with Runa. Uh, for some reason, she didn't remember kind of that I had a master's in Vikings <laughs> but everything all of a sudden everything just fit perfect and it's so much fun how uh, what we know and how our interests uh, that we have in some together uh, they are kind of just Midgarsblut so it's it makes it very easy to to plot out new things to do and you know it's it, we have a lot of fun doing this and and there's a lot of we are a core of maybe uh, five, six people working with the festival, but then we have a lot of volunteers and others with us throughout the year and also during the festival. That's really important. But it's like Midgarsblut from the first year, uh, we were maybe around 500 people. Uh, was a disaster, really, economically. Um, but we worked up ourselves up year by year. And... Um, and at the end, it was like 5,000 people a day. And, um, and for a small organization, uh, growing fast is a challenge mm -hmm, because uh, you don't necessarily have the people you need to mm. do what needs to be done for free. <laughs> because mm. it's not like when you are building something from, from the bottom, you don't have 
the economic muscles to pay everyone uh, immediately. So you you know this. You, you <laughs> absolutely, I think. See, and yeah, it can be it can be detrimental to grow too quick as well. If you grow too fast, yeah. you can soon, you know, go bankrupt or you know for whatever reason. Yeah. This is definitely. You need to watch it. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've struggled with 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 horns of owning, like I said, because we I came from a plumbing background. Sarah was a dog groomer, and you know we weren't we weren't business people. We you know we didn't go to business school. We have no idea or had no idea how to run a business. So thankfully, we were in a position where we grew organically and just reinvested the money back in that we made, and it grew over time slowly. You know, it takes five years to get here. But we've had to learn everything about business. You know, it's not it's not easy, you know, marketing and, and advertising and how to keep your books. It's you know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that you, that you say you need people in you need people there, but you can't always pay them. So you need to ask a lot of favors. There's a lot of challenges to that. Mm. Lucky for us, Runa has an education in both business and all all that. Oh, that's you know? always handy. Uh, and a lot of people don't think she she has it because she looks so metal. <laughs> <laughs> but she she has some badass education there. Never judge your <laughs> book by what its cover. She's doing. <laughs> that's, that's that's like uh, uh, when people. Uh, on campus assume that I'm one of the students yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a prime example of that <laughs> yeah no you, you you can be you can be a professional at something and, and, and still uh look like you just rolled out of a gutter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Heavy> metal festival <laughs> so, I mean I know that we're, we're half an hour into this now and I feel like we've we've maybe just assumed that everybody listening knows what Midgas plot is so I don't know if you want to maybe take. I mean, I, I I guess most people have guessed by now, but I don't know if you just want to take a minute just to explain kind of what it is, yeah. maybe where it is, and a little bit about yeah. it. Just you know, so it gives people a bit of a background as well. Mm. Yeah, Midgas Blut is a metal festival in in uh, Vestfold in Norway. It's a one and a half hour uh, drive or train from Oslo. Um, and it takes place mid-August every year. And we are around, as I said, around 5,000 a day inside the festival site. And what's interesting about the site is that it's an old burial ground. So it's the biggest uh, assembly of burial mounds in Northern Europe. And they're from around 600 to 900, dated wow. AD. And uh, so the, the site is pretty impressive. It's by the sea. Uh, and our campsite is by the shore, so it's very popular to go out bathing and swimming. It's it's very beautiful mm -hmm. there. And then uh, the cool thing is that they have erected a reconstructed Viking hall. Oh, wow. Huge Viking hall where we can put in around 250, 300 um, people for a gig. And then we have like smaller gigs there. And And the music we have is we have a lot of extreme metal black metal, death metal, uh, especially. Um, and then we have uh, a lot of folk music. We have uh, a lot of electronica, but it's the, the common theme is that it's the dark side of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's dark folk, it's dark electronica, um, and of course, dark metal. And we have like mm, a coming, common string is that you have like a... Um, you're interested in the, the dark mythologies, you know. And that means it doesn't have to be only Norse mythology. 
I mean, a lot of metal bands are really into Egyptian or Persian stuff or, you know. So it, it's more about um, um, the prehistoric mythologies that interest a lot of our, our audience and that we pick up somehow. But because we are at a, at a Norse site, a very important Norse site um, in Norway, we, we focus mainly on um, the Norse histories. Um, and then along with like a three-day, next year it's going to be four days of gigs. We have, um, uh, we broadcast movies, we, uh, we do cartoon uh, workshops where we have the best cartoonists in the world coming over to teach kids or, or grown-ups, <laughs> whose kids inside, <laughs> uh, to do uh, comics, Norse comics. Oh, wow. We have seminars, uh, four-day four seminars where you can uh, learn about uh, Viking history or, and we also have like a bit of music business themes going on. Uh, lots of uh, Norse food, uh, Norse drinks. And we, we, we make a lot of effort in making the surroundings uh, welcoming. Our slogan is welcome home. It, it, it awaits you as you enter the, the site because we've, we are at... Um, we call ourselves Midgard's Blut, and Midgard is the world of men in Norse mythology, and the Blut is uh, to sacrifice or to strengthen the gods. So what happens is that when people arrive, we open the festival with a Blut, which is a sacrifice, where we have a big bowl of blood, and we have some Norse uh, statues, and then we, we have the band Folke Borta for Nuravin. The people uh, beyond the uh, northern wind, <laughs> in English, and they are leading the ceremony and kind of sacrifice to the different, you know, east, west, north, and so on, and, and the gods. And the idea is to kind of uh, have a starting point and gather and say, okay, we're here together. Uh, now is, uh, when we are gathered here, it's going to be peace, you know, to set a good tone. And then a lot of people go forth and and um, splatter some blood on the on themselves. Maybe make a personal sacrifice. Um, for some people, it's just theater. For other people, it's something deeply personal and spiritual. And other people who is a bit further back in the crowd, they think this is completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. Uh, but but the main thing is that. Um, our opening ceremony is is open for interpretation, so you're not uh, pushed into anything. You can be a spectator and enjoy it, or you can take part in a personal way. And then, when the whole festival is over, we arrange for Ragnarok, uh, the end of the world, you know, so that the circle is closed. And uh, when a year comes, we're going to meet again. But then we go uh, with the torches to uh, one of the grave mounds. And we stand around it, several thousand people with torches. And then Folke Borta von Uravin is drumming. And it's a really, really nice uh, experience in the pitch of dark night when we stand there together. I imagine it after... It's something people remember. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I know personally, after three days of drinking, I feel like he's Ragnarok. So yeah. I imagine that's what it's uh, well, that's what it's like for a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah. So no. So we say that you know when you are, when you are entering the festival grounds of Midgarsbrot, you're entering Norse time. It's kind of, it's something, uh, something else. 
But of course, it is um, first and foremost, we identify as a metal festival. Uh, but we explore both the stories, the historical stories, and the musical inspirations that has always inspired metal. And both folk and electronica is very important here. Uh, so, uh, but we are all about metal. Some people say, oh, uh, Midgabrut, no, no, that's not my cup of tea. I'm more into death metal. I like, well, then you should come to Midgabrut <laughs> because we have a lot of death metal and black metal and extreme metal. Uh, but we have other stuff too. And and what's fun is that we have like one segment of the 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 audience that is very metal and has the usual metal attire. And then we have the other segment, which is all about being Vikings, mm -hmm. uh, more or less authentic. Some are more playful, some are more authentic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the Viking people doesn't always enjoy metal. And the metal people doesn't always enjoy folk stuff or Viking stuff. But what happens is that something, people get surprised. And they 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 are surprised, but I like this, <laughs> you know. So so we feel that we are challenging people's musical preferences, and we are doing it with success, because people are actually uh, exploring uh, new types of music, and maybe exploring themselves a bit too when coming to the festival. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful mix of people. It is. It's very friendly. And that's something uh, people say. And also people who are just visiting, maybe because they are politicians or businessmen or whatever, who's just curious to go and have a peek, is that, oh, this is so friendly. And they are really surprised. But I suppose that's also a trait of metal festivals. A lot of people say that, you know, mm -hmm. if you go to a metal gig, there's, there's a really good atmosphere and really nice people. People are usually well behaved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. Well That's it. I think, I think <laughs> yeah. to to anybody on the outside that doesn't necessarily listen to to metal or has never been to a metal festival, it can come across quite intimidating. It's quite angry sounding music. So I think people may just assume that the crowd is also like that when that's not usually the case. Mm. No, no, people are just generally happy, and I think you know. For me, at least, it's like uh, sometimes I say I would never have been this happy if I hadn't listened to extreme metal because <laughs> <laughs> I get rid of all. It's not that, and I'm not angry when I'm listening to the music. It's just, it's just. Um, I, I suppose I I'm allowed to uh, acknowledge uh, the the darker sides and the aggressive sides in a very safe way by accessing them through the music somehow. That. I think that's true. That's something we've spoken about on the podcast before. Is is I think everybody has to get rid of aggression somehow, whether it's through music, through sport. You know, it, it it's a good thing to do. You know, I think the world would be a much calmer place if more people did. Yeah, and you know, there's plenty of research too to back this up right? that that you know demonstrates that uh, if you if you have some kind of venue to access that uh a darker side then 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 that helps with your general mood and also your patience and tolerance that's why i do it <laughs> <laughs> so I no but there's a reason behind a the you know yin and yang and and all that you know you should be yeah. a little bit of both and i think 
today, we're all supposed to be so bloody happy all the time yeah. and that we are more unhappy than ever. And I think uh, we need <laughs> we need some darkness in our lives. That's, so. that's it, exactly. Yeah, I, agree. I think, yeah. especially with social media, you know, all you see is the good of people's lives. I mean, it's very, you know, very few people post the negatives on there. You, obviously, you always get, you always get that couple that well, the post they bring. We also all unfriend those guys, right? I mean, yeah, like, yeah, oh, we do. Is- <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but I mean, mute. If you, if you look, if you look on Instagram, you know, you only see the good pictures that people have taken. You know, the ones, yeah. the ones that they've taken thirty before and then edited and put a filter on and you know they look amazing (laughs) but it's like they're they're the only ones you see so you live in this world of only seeing the you know the positivity and everybody and then you look introspectively your own life and go why why is my life not like that and say well that's because nobody's fucking life is like that that's you know this is a world that people are creating to show everybody else and they don't you know they're not going to show you the arguments they're having at home or or, you know all, all the negativity that they're having so I think that's important for people to remember and and you know you see that kind of like you say that anger and that negativity coming out it's we live in a world that seems like it's almost wrapped in bubble wrap at times you know I guess even if you look back to the Victorian times you would have seen animals being butchered in the street but I think that gives a perspective to people of kind of it, it is part of life not everything is rosy and happy all the time and I think pretending that it is can lead to some dark places in itself when it eventually does come out. Mm. Oh, it's, I think it's a great value of extreme metal. It's so important. Just pour everything out. And uh, if you have a really bad day and I just put on some Slayer and then I'm just, oh, <laughs> much better. Yeah. yeah, it works every time. I mean, a, I mean, a mosh pit will always get out a little bit of anger as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's been a while. But that, that's it. I mean, it's been too long now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, Mickey, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the so the, the so you mentioned Bora as as a historical site and also important historical site. Um, I think there's there's a lot of interesting things to to talk about with that general area, um, Bora in and of itself. But then we also have, not far from there, we have Shiringsal, uh, um, uh, Kirkpan as well, uh, the old um, Viking Age trade port, one of the very important trade ports in in, in that part of Norway. Um, we have Tønsberg as an important medieval city as well. With a the oldest huge town in Norway. Of, mm. Yeah. Um, so so there, there are so many many things going on right there in that little hot spot. And um, uh, do you just want to like share a little bit about the, the, the rich history of that area um, in general? Uh, it's uh, so many things to explore there. And this is something that we are discussing in Midgashbud. How, how can we access, how can we give access to our audience um, uh, to more of this history? Uh, you know, maybe creating packages or offers, you know, before you come so you can stay there for a bit longer and experience it. And also, you know, there's a lot of things going on right now where with georadars and modern technology that uh, makes you uh, find new uh, Viking ships and and, uh, cult houses and longhouses and 
And I think that in the years to come, we will experience new discoveries in, in, a, in a rate, in a speed that we have never seen before. And I think yeah. that will change what we think. Um, Kopang is very exciting because it's a trading point that was uh, mentioned already by uh, Alfred, Alfred the Great. Was it Alfred the Great? Yeah, yeah. So, so this was this was um, the the Nor, uh, Norwegian traveler. Uh, yeah, who traveled Uttar. Yeah, yeah. Uttar, who traveled um, from the very north and down to Cape uh, to Cape yeah. Bang and then over to Athelstan, uh, the yes, king in England. Athelstan. Yeah, and to his yes. court and told about yeah. uh, the the route Norvegen, uh, mm -hmm. the way the way north that gave gave Norway the name. And uh, and Kopang was the trade center, and uh, there's been lots of excavations there. First, uh, there were lots of excavations that were completely wrong and gave the whole wrong idea of the place. And then uh, new knowledge and new excavations changed that uh, the idea of Kopang and the housing that were there, if they were temporary or not. And and I think this is what happened with the research connected to Kopang is something that will happen with a lot of things we think we know. Because mm -hmm. everything we know about history is an interpretation based on the sources and the knowledge we have at the moment. And they will always change. And uh, that's why I, I just, sometimes I wish I could just jump back, jump, you know, jump forth 50 years in time just to see how much is, is rewritten. Because, of course, history is all about being, being rewritten. That's scholarship. That's what you do all the time. You're constantly searching for new knowledge. Um, another thing I find interesting, you know, in connection with this is because uh, Westfall is one county. And then Telemark is the county where Nutodden is and where I live. And uh, in Norway, we have... Um, joined together lots of counties uh, the last year. There's been a lot of fuss about this because it's a lot about identity and different histories. And what's interesting is that Westfall and Telemark is now one county. And Westfall has a very clear Viking uh, profile and identity, lots of finds, lots of stories. And also back in like Snurre Sturlason and all the old Norse sources, you can read about Westfall. But Telemark, not much almost nothing in the sources and 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 when you look at the archaeology it's mostly been concerning um the iron bogs in telmark where they were doing iron but apart from that there has been very little excavations going on in telmark so we know very little about viking age history in telmark so so let me just uh, throw some some scholarship at you here because um uh Kopang was uh, the sort of like the the, the the importance of Kopan was built on the soapstone. Yes. Um, and they're trading out soapstone, and that's part of the first sort of like wave of trade that we can see in the Viking Age, the proliferation of Norwegian soapstones in, in, in the rest of Scandinavia and even uh, outside of Scandinavia. And um, just just uh, just to jump in quickly, what's what's a soapstone? What's a soapstone? It's, it's a type is, of yeah. You go. <laughs> it's a type of uh, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, a, a relatively soft type of stone that you can fashion uh, bowls and and uh, other things from. So so it was very useful. It's, it's so easy to carve. Exactly. Uh, yes. And it's uh, it's so it's it's really like touching soap. 
You know, it's a very fitting name because it's like touching soap after you have uh, shaped it. Now, now you've said that, I, I do remember seeing them in the in the museum in Oslo. So Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and see, this is what I would... I have just always assumed, uh, without having actually, you know, researched it any more closely, that that would have come from Telemark. That 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 you know you would have those trade routes and supply routes into that area. Yeah, it's not the soapstone that is part of the Telemark story. It's the whetstones yes, to sharpen okay. the tools. So there's a very famous uh, whetstone quarry uh, up in western Telemark, uh, close to Eidsborg, that also has a small stave church. And um, I used to work at the museum there uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and, and the quarry was one of those areas I was working with. And uh, the whetstones are found um, throughout the Telemark Canal that goes out to the coast. And you can find whetstones from Telemark all over the world, uh, or at least Europe. Uh, so it's clear that there has been a very important trade going on for at least a thousand years from Telemark. And still, Telemark is so anonymous in the sources, and it really puzzles me. I, I, I don't know why. Uh, of course, it must have been something to do with who wrote things down and their connections with the Norwegian crown. And, and Telemark has always been known to be very in opposition to the power in Norway and didn't give in until like the 1700s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, so they have a very peculiar, Telemark has a peculiar standing in the Viking uh, history of Norway. And also uh, one of the bigger uh, female graves with lots of grave goods is also found in, in Western Telemark. And also a grave that was first interpreted as a smith's grave with lots of tools, but they have discussed later if if there was uh, several uh, graves on top of each other, and that was misinterpreted as one grave. But there are interesting finds, but very little literary sources and very little research has been done. I've actually done some research on on Telemark myself. You have. Um, oh, you've done yes, you've done research on everything. Yay! <laughs> no, no, no. no. A, I mean, it, it's because I, as I said before, I'm interdisciplinary. So I've worked with, you know, uh, across uh, uh, the boundaries between folklore and, uh, and mythology. And we do have that really, very interesting uh, folktale from Udebe, um, uh, where where we have, um, uh, it's it's a derivative of, of um probably like a compound of multiple uh, aspects of, of the mythology where where we have uh, Thor um, who is oh uh, it's from called, the where all the stones the quarry is sort of um, yes yeah Ura yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah yes. mm. you know because I um, in Danish we say instead of yeah <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Midgasport I had a funny uh, <laughs> experience with that try, trying to tell the uh, uh, the person that there was uh, registering me as a uh, um, uh, somebody who with a, um, a pass a, a, a so like journalist pass that I was from uh, USA USA <laughs> <laughs> O-S-E. <laughs> it was it was a mess, but anyway, so, so that's that that folktale right? is really interesting because we have a story where a a troll called uh, yes. a Tore, um yeah. 
uh, is, uh, uh, is bringing down mountains. And this relates to a wedding scene. And we're also told in that story that uh, he's hammering the mountain with his hammer. Um, and then he loses the head of the hammer. Then he has to go find that and all that stuff. And this is like a, a folktale that is compounding like three, four uh, elements from the mythology about Thor. And that's obviously why I've been interested in it, because it's also, um, in that sense, a, uh, a story about uh, how landscape formations are made and, uh, and, and all of that stuff. Um, and that's, that's some of the things that I work with, and especially with volcanoes. But, uh, but also uh, I used it as an example of, 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 uh, of uh, how my method works when interpreting these types of stories. And, and I find it a, an incredibly fascinating story because obviously the, the way that it's been written down um, in the 19th century or early 20th century, I can't remember exactly when, um, it's, it's obviously sort of like a romanticizing um, Nordic mythology a little bit. There's the the, the uh, interpreter, I would call him, um, and I can't remember his name, um, like infers that, oh, this must be Thor from from Ausgard. So it's, it's, that's what he's writing and so on. Um, but behind his romantic, romantic aspects, there's a, there's a true folktale that has you know, retained so many elements. Certainly. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah, and it's just it's a really fascinating story, yeah. if you ask there's, me. There's so. there's quite a few of those stories uh, of mm-hmm. trolls doing this and that, and I'm just like, no, that I've heard that one before. <laughs> Something <laughs> is going on. So it's like it's still there. It's just rewritten into folk tales to make them harmless, you know, from in a, in a Christian perspective. And I think that's very very interesting. And I think, and I think it, it, Telemark is so interesting because. You know, you could say it's a handicap that we don't have the Norse sources, but maybe you could turn it around that it's even more exciting that we don't, because then you are very free to actually interpret what's going on. It's it's really, really fascinating how little there is. Yeah. But lots on Westfall. Yeah, that's true. A lot, a lot of, speaking of Westfall, a lot about how it's also tied to Denmark in the Viking Age. Ottar actually yes. says that, uh, that the Danish king rules over Schiringsal. Um, yeah. which is just puzzling <laughs> like, mm. in what capacity and, and what Danish king too. Like, is it, is it a, a, a king from like that rules over all of Denmark or just like part of Denmark or, you know, there's, there's so much we still don't know about the, the relationships across that, uh, that body of water and um, as we call yeah. it in Danish. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of Viking history that is lost to people because we are thinking very much in the lines of national borders, like Norwegian yeah. Viking history, Danish Viking history, Swedish Viking history. And when it comes to border, for instance, there's so many lines both to, to Denmark and to Sweden, you know, mm-hmm. that it's almost, it, but it's part, it's the same story. Yeah. We have just split it up to make it ours. Yeah. No, it's a, <laughs> Exactly. This is this is the thing that I always try to teach my students. These national borders that exist today, not the same as back then. <laughs> we can't even talk about nations in the same way or, or the same identities even. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get any any pushback when it comes to thinking about ideas? When it, you know, with, Like you say, with the different borders in the different countries, do you ever get kind of like 
the people aren't willing to accept something because because maybe you're in Denmark and you're thinking of of something in Norway and you have a different idea on it. Can they be kind of like they say a pushback or a, a opposition just because it's a different country? Absolutely. You know, this, this happens all the time. And I think for a lot of Scandinavian scholars, it actually happens unconsciously that they, they are just like accustomed to thinking within the, the borders of their own little country. And, and so they, 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 uh, they get, they get pushed back on, on so many interesting things. Uh, I mean, I say interesting because I really mean interesting. It's interesting to consider exactly how people think <laughs> when they're, when they're making these decisions. I think the Swedish scholars are probably the, the ones who are best at thinking outside of their national blocks. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, then, you know, it deteriorates from there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think a great example is, is when, uh, we just had this, you know, this big, uh, uh, genetic study of, of, of Vikings, right. And, and all of a sudden we have a Danish uh, geneticist claiming that it's like almost only Denmark and then a couple of islands off the coast of Sweden that were actually the Viking age. And Norway, as he said, was the rotten banana. And <laughs> that actually, uh, uh, in a Danish context, that's a really offensive thing to say. So the rotten banana is something that the people from Copenhagen call that part of Denmark that has very little economic activity. And yeah. everybody is like sort of like uh, marked as a loser if they come from there. Oh, so that's yeah. some bullshit, right? <laughs> and then you have, oh, thank you. you. Have some of, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, thank I, you for so, standing up for so, me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's you know it's 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 just no, it's so crazy that 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 you would even say that as a scholar. Yeah. It's it's like you know it's weird. why. Yeah, it's weird. and in the same way you have like, you know, then you have uh, philologists or, or literary scholars from Iceland who are, uh, who think about Iceland as some sort of like epicenter in the Viking Age when actually, sorry guys, it wasn't, it was kind of like where people went to retire in the Viking Age. <laughs> and that doesn't take away from a lot of other awesome things that have to do with Iceland. <laughs> Matthias, we're trying to not get in trouble on this podcast. And you've literally I, I just called Iceland like the retirement home. <laughs> the retirement home of Iceland. No, there was, still, there was still a lot of awesome things that happened, but um, it's just that, you know, it's not you know, the epicenter of, 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 of a lot of things in the Viking Age. Uh, there's, a, there's some North Atlantic trade, of course, which is important. Um, and all, it's important both for Denmark and for Norway uh, in particular. Um, but, um, but it's, a, you know, I, people should tone it down when it comes to their national interpretations of things. It's, uh, it's, it's getting tiresome, if you ask mm. me. <laughs> no, but it's, it's uh, I mean, it could be within a country too, because I'm from northern Norway and I, I grew up way beyond the Arctic Circle. And uh, Viking Age history is not really a part of Northern Norwegian history um, mm. in many ways. It has never really been included. It felt like something they did in the South. Uh, but when you start looking at history, uh, there's a lot of things going on in Northern Norway, but they are very under-communicated in the storytelling. Uh, and um, and one, of the, one of the more exciting articles I read... Uh, uh, I've read is about how someone said, well, maybe um, because you talk about how Norway got gathered into one kingdom and that was Harald Hårfagre, uh, Harald Fairhair. And, uh, and then some say, uh, okay, it would never have been possible 
without the uh, interventions of the northern Norwegian um, jarls because they had the economic power. And when you look at Lofoten in Borgen and you see the enormous longhouse that is there, and also the fact that they were taxing the Samis who were uh, having all the luxury goods at the time, there is a good point here that maybe, yeah. you know, it's something who writes the, the winning story. They, yeah. they get the power, but it doesn't mean it, it, it was really like that. So maybe Northern Norway was a lot more involved in what was going on uh, than yeah. we acknowledge. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, uh, I mean, you think about such things as the walrus uh, tusk yeah. that, that that they were hunting up there, uh, all the different kinds of pelts that would be coming from the Sami um, reindeer, um, and and so many other uh, goods. And and when we look at, I mean, uh, the the house at Lofoten is the largest Viking age structure that we know of. Yeah, it's huge and. It has ties to all over Europe. So, yeah, forgetting about that is, you know, uh, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But it's still kind of forgotten, even though it's like one of the most popular tourism uh, goals in Norway today. Northern Norway is still kind of not really included in, you know, the Viking narrative, if I can call it that. Uh, it's it's really slow. It's like it's something on the side Kind of. Um, so I, I just find it very interesting that even, well, Norway is very long. So, uh, but it's it's very interesting how how the story is told and what is left out. Yeah. And, and to, th- to this day, I feel, I don't feel that Viking history is kind of my history as a Northern Norwegian person. Mm. Mm. No, I, I I get that as also as a Dane because you know if you go out outside of Scandinavia, you know, when, when people think of Vikings, they think of Norwegians and Icelanders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Danes and the Swedes tend, tend to be left out. Uh, the Swedes, they might sometimes be like, "Oh, yeah, okay, you guys can also be Viking." Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, in Denmark, I, I, for a long time, I feel like we have perhaps also, like, with apart from like you know Harold Bluetooth and his runestone and all that nonsense, um, we have been focusing more on, on on aspects of medieval history. At least when the, uh, when it comes to um, what we're taught in school, of course, we're like, "Oh, yeah, we were badass Vikings for a while," but you know what? It's much more cool to talk about this cathedral over here <laughs> yep. that's a, or this castle that we have yep. over here or something like that instead. But I think that's what happened in Telemark, where I live now, mm-hmm. is that they have taken on the medieval story and not the Viking story. So because mm-hmm. we have, we've had so many stave churches here, uh, only a couple left in Telemark, and we have the biggest one in Norway is here in Nordodden. Uh But also... Uh, uh, we have a lot of the stave church portals that has been preserved are from Telemark. So quite a few of them have been preserved. So that's why the stave church story stands very strong in Telemark. And so mm. the story is connected to that and to the medieval period and then uh, with the folk art uh, and, and uh, folk clothing. It's, it's kind of the, the trademark of Telemark today. So this just we have just picked in Telemark they have picked a different scenario that is our story. Whilst in Westfall it's the Vikings, they have chosen the Viking story. We have chosen 
the medieval story. And now we have chosen another one, which is the industrial story. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny how how these how the past uh, makes up a very important part of our identities. It's extremely important for how you see yourself and and what you put money into. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, the Viking Age stories in Vestfold are so successful now, uh, with Midgårdsbrot as well, is because the local governments have decided we are going to put money in this because this is important to us. So cultural mm-hmm. heritage is a lot about money and who is willing to put money in it because they feel it's important to them. Yeah. You know, and that's, again, uh, relating this to Denmark, you know, the the, the most augmented, built-out, um, modernly fashioned site that you can find from the Viking Age in Denmark is Yelling. Yeah. Uh, where Harold Bluetooth put up his stone, right? Um, and that's because we, you know, still have a royal house that, that, in, that technically descends from him. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. that's why the money is going there. Yeah. So that says a lot. <laughs> And it's and it's also funny how that site has exploded from having very little visitors, and with a new visitor yeah. center, it is just out of this world. It's so yeah. crowded that it's becoming a problem. Yeah, no, and I think I, that's I interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even with history, you'll know with with your job, Vicky, that marketing still plays a part. You have to make it. Oh yeah. You know, if you could have the most amazing site in the world, but if you present it boring, then it. To, to the ordinary person it's just not going to be appealing but if you know if you can make it really interactive and fun then people are going to want to come and learn and mm. so it make you know it makes a big difference but i think that's also a very interesting borderline between uh you know uh making it uh accessible to people uh, but at the same time you shouldn't go too commercial because no. you don't want to become a circus and that's I think that's something that Midgårdsblot has to balance a lot. But also like some of the very popular sites like Borgen Lofoten, for instance, who is having so many people coming over now with the cruise that it's a problem. And and um, for Midgårdsblot, it's like our vision all the time. Um, and Runa has been very uh, insistent on this, is that we are not going to go Vakken or, you know, we're not going to go 10, 15,000 or or a hundred thousand, you know, we are going to be a small festival because it's part of our identity that we shouldn't go all that commercial. Mm -hmm. And also it's something about, you know, being sustainable, that you should Mm -hmm. uh, consider uh, nature and the toll it takes on the local nature and um, people who live there. and, And also that if you grow very big you might not be able to use local resources anymore because they can't provide enough and then maybe you have to go international or cheaper and then you lose a bit of yourself so we want to stay we want to stay local and we want to stay relatively small but we we need to be economically sustainable but we need to be uh we want to be believed in the project that we do we want to um to do it in a in a way that treats both people nature and our project well it's it's so interesting how these things kind of cross borders almost because again that relates to me and what we do because you know we are a family you know family business me and my wife and i make a lot of the horns myself i've got my own little workshop 
But mm. you, equally, you also want to portray to the world as being a professional business and you want to be seen as a proper business. You want to come across as that, but you also don't want to lose what made you, what, you know, what made us the company we are is having that personal family touch. So it, it's finding that balance of being commercial and, and being economical with your money and having the business side, but then also making sure you keep that nice, you know, what made you, you and your, your, that uniqueness. Exactly. Yeah. Mass production is something that's killing the planet. So let's not go there. Let's uh, let's find another way. And that's why we're looking back to to going back to the personal personal touch and 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 try to be real. Uh, you you wouldn't believe the amount of messages or emails I get from I get particularly Indian companies wanting to sell like cow horn or mass produce. And I mean I get I get emails, messages, somehow they managed to get my phone number. I had a I had a, a call yesterday that it came through from Maine in, in the USA. But when I answered it, it was an Indian fellow asking to sell, you know, drinking horns on mass, you know, like the mass produced. And I'm like, no, that's my thing. Like I get them raw. I, I, I send them, I work on them. I carve them, I line them. I'm like, that's what I do. Why would I want to buy? Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's insane. Like it's, it's, it's literally insane the amount of companies that reach out in, to do that. Cause it makes me think, well, how many of these things have been sold and shipped and how big is the, is the market, I guess, because, you know, I would think there'd be like five companies maybe that sold these things on, on mass for, from, from that, that kind of world. But I mean, I must've had messages from 50 different companies. So it's yeah. insane. The amount that there is there. And speaking of Viking markets, I mean, this is, this is something that I recognize as a, a continual discussion too. Uh, back in the day, uh, where where when I did a little bit of uh, dressing up and reenacting myself <laughs> you know, here and there. Oh, we've we've all done um, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was a discussion. There was like that guy who showed up with his Viking tent, and then he had bought bought a bunch of uh, stuff that he got shipped from like Thailand or or, or somewhere. And I mean, um, it was uh, you know, so, so it was there. There were some markets that wouldn't even allow people like that showing up, and other markets where they would be you know allowed in, but they weren't particularly popular with the, the rest of the, the crowd because, uh, you know, it was about craft, you know, and, and doing it yourself. I mean, like I say, we, we see that all the time. There's, there's so many other websites that literally – the problem is, though, that I guess the, the end user doesn't really know any better or doesn't know the difference. Like we, you know, we no. aim to have everything's handmade. You know, we have our own jeweler. She lives 10 minutes from me. You know, and she, we've developed, we've worked with her over time to develop the things we do, and it's frustrating when you see people just pop up out of nowhere with this massive catalog of items that you know that fifty other people are selling the same thing, but it's the end user that doesn't know any different. They just see a Viking symbol on a, on you know, on a bracelet or a necklace as a pendant, and they like it, so they buy it, and it's kind of not knowing, not knowing any better. You I guess. Know- and, and I just want to throw this out there. And you know that if somebody um, in, a, in, a, in a country relatively far away can produce, mass produce things 
uh, of this kind and send them to Europe or the U.S. or uh, some other place um, uh, uh, cheap, relatively cheap. You, you also know then that the people who are making these things, um, they are not getting paid uh, anything it's not even the pay like we i had a guy send me some pictures of of his his drinking horns you know and the factory that they were made in which i say he says factory it's it's not a factory but it was you know it was it was a machine with you know a few cogs with like i guess like a sandpaper mixed between two two spinning sort of wheels and you know there's no there's no safety there there was a, a couple of guys sat on the floor with with no shoes on, no mask on, no anything, mm. with like a just covered in horn dust, with a pile of horns one side, this unsanded, and a pile of horns the other side. And I, I mean, to be fair, the age of the the guy was really questionable. In my, I think he was, you know, he was probably like maybe like sixteen, fifteen, something like that. And it's like it, the the conditions, the working conditions are completely unsafe. You know, I it took me years to build up the the extraction that I use now. And I, you know, I've got pretty good extraction and I, wear, I still wear a, fit, a full face mask because of the risk to your lungs. But I guess, you know, when you get, it, the, the pay is minimal, but it's also the damage to the health, which must be, yeah. must be ridiculous. Because mm-hmm. when I when I saw the pictures, I was like, you know, I would never fucking buy from this because that it's just mm-hmm. so, it's so dangerous. And, you know, they probably don't, the, the, the guy working there probably doesn't know any better or needs the money. And it's like... It, how how much is a mask? You know, just even like a paper mask, just something at least. Yeah, no, so it's it's a uh, it's hardcore exploitation, um, and that that's the that's the major problem too. You know, it's, it's you know it has a huge environmental impact, and at the same time, it also it exploits um, uh, the people who are living in the different countries where where this production to be made. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we should find both you know environmentally and uh, humanely uh, sustainable ways of, uh, of doing these things instead like, it, the, i mean i think i saw it was a bbc3 documentary um i think it was called the burner boys and it was about a place in africa where a lot of electronics get sent once once we throw them away we don't really think about them you just kind of think they go it's gone you throw it in the bin you throw it in the tip it's gone forever and you you don't think again but what actually happens is they they get put on a ship and they get taken to sold sold to a little place in Africa, and a bunch of usually men come along and they don't get any masks. They they set it all on fire, and their job is to walk around setting all the electronics on fire, setting all the cables on fire to get the copper out of. And mm. it's sickening to see because it's such little money that most of them can't even pay to live on. But the smoke is just it's just black smoke coming out, and there's mm. no you know there's no masks. It's it's long term damage. And it's something like I say that we just you don't think about it because you you throw your, your old TV away because you bought a new one, but you don't kind of think about what happens from there, and it's it's only getting worse. And quite often, you might even quite often you might even be thinking, "Oh, um, I'm doing something good here because like I I I I, I throw um, my electronics out in you know in a responsible way. I, I put it in the right bin or something like that." And and yeah, sure, uh, it might be responsible in your country, but uh, <laughs> whatever place it's getting shipped to, not so That's much. That's exactly. Right? The, it just gets yeah. sold there, and I mean, they probably make these guys probably make a decent living compared to what you could make not doing it. But I mean, a t-shirt tied around your face when it comes to 
you know, setting fire to a lot of plastic and rubber. It's not, I don't think no. it's going to do you much good. No. <laughs> but if it is, if it is any consolation, a lot of uh, uh, English trash, like regular um, biomass trash, uh, that kind of stuff, actually goes to Denmark. Uh, so. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> so that's where we get rid of it. Well, so, <laughs> well, it's because in Denmark we burn it for fuel uh, and uh, 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 for the um, biomass plants on the west coast, um, which is actually incredibly expensive and also pollutes too much. Um, but but it was sort of like a nineties, a nineteen nineties idea of like, oh, this is a, a, a sort of like a better way to to use the garbage um, and. No, I don't think it actually is. <laughs> I mean, uh, at, so. at the time it probably was, but then te- technology yeah. comes along, and that's it, that's I think that's something that we face all the time. I think the UK has just said we're going to invest in a in a bunch of offshore wind farms, and with by twenty thirty we can be completely sufficient by then. But it's like, but where's technology going to be in ten years? You know, we could spend billions on these offshore farms and then something else could pop up that's 10 times like it's kind of like we've got rid of nuclear now nuclear is not really a because it's too expensive to run and, and maintain mm. so it cha- everything changes so fast you, it's yeah it does. it's all a bit depressing <laughs> yeah we need we need some black metal <laughs> yeah that's we need it some black metal take the depression away <laughs> <laughs> for me i think we could wrap this one up. I've got to go and pick up some, we're going to drive up to York now and pick up some mead. So Yay! Oh, nice. that's always nice. Right. Yeah. So I have to check on my homebrew. Yeah. No, yeah. we have a, we have a nice guy up there who, who makes his, he's got a micro meadery. He, he looks after his own bees. Um, and then obviously takes the honey from them, makes his own mead. So it's all a very kind of small local place. So that sounds awesome. Yeah, so it, and he makes, he's won a bunch of awards for it. It's really, uh, Really nice. I'll have to send you some over. Yeah, yeah. you should. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's not, we should. Uh, it's not like meet you up at Midgasbrot next year, hopefully. Absolutely. And, uh, have a toast. Yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I'll, I'll bring some mead with me. <laughs> yes, do that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much for for spending the time to come on. Um, I mean, we could have we didn't even speak about what happened to Midgasbrot this year with it not um, no. not going ahead. We can do it next time. <laughs> that's it. Yes. Again, I mean. Yeah. Once do you guys do you know what's happening next year? Are the plans in place yet, or is he kind of we just are, waiting? Um, no, we're waiting like everybody else. Uh, we're hoping we can go full speed. That's mm-hmm. what we want, and we have uh, all the bands and all the speakers for the seminars. They are lined up and ready. Everybody's ready to to go, but um, it all depends on you know what happens in the world and what uh, the national authorities allow us to do so we we really hope that we can have people back home as we say yeah. uh, next mm-hmm. year when i would say when you know for sure then you can come back on and we can discuss about obviously oh what yeah you, we'd love to what you're gonna we'll do really and miss having all the good the good people around that's it and if you uh yeah. if you ever want to put on a live podcast at midgas blah i'm sure me and Matthias would be up for that Yay! <laughs> of course Absolutely. yeah okay. question and answer or something i think that would be quite cool yes. yeah, yeah that'd be awesome yeah so let's I mean, uh, stick to the thought that's it yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um yeah so thank you very much um 
if I don't know if you want to let people know where they can find you, whether you want to promote your social media or your Instagram or where you work or Midgard's Blight, if there's anything you just want to promote, I guess. Plug. Yeah, you should uh, yeah, you should connect with us at the Midgard's Blood at Instagram. And then also uh, the Midgard's Blood community on uh, Facebook. I mean, we have a, an event page called Midgard's Blood, but we have a group called Midgard's Blood Community where lots of uh, eager Vikings and metalheads are on and <laughs> are sharing uh, bodcore and jokes and uh, <laughs> and oh, the latest in science or just good music. And it's a really good uh, atmosphere in there. So um, join the community and uh, you will have all the latest news first. Perfect. Matthias, mm. <laughs> where can everybody find you? You can find me by my name on um, Instagram, Matthias Norvig. Uh, you can find the Nordic Mythology channel on Facebook, and also you can find me and the Nordic Mythology channel on uh, the website, nordicmythologychannel.com. And thank you so much for the uh, very interesting talk, Vicky. Oh, thank you. Thank you, too, for inviting me, and it was a great chat. Well, thank you. Anytime. So quickly, you can um, obviously you can find me at Hornswording or at Daniel underscore Farrand1 for... Just mainly just me in the gym taking pictures is that one. Um, <laughs> so obviously you can you can follow us on Patreon as well. We've got a bunch of um, cool stuff on there. We're just about to release our first story time episode, which is us going through the Inglinger saga, which is a patron only podcast. So that that's a good one for people who want to get you know a little bit deeper into the sagas. Um, we have a bunch of other stuff on there. So that's just. Nordic Mythology Podcast on Patreon. Um, if you like the podcast, if you could just take a moment to leave us a review and a five-star rating, that always works well for us to uh, get found by other people. So, yeah, that's that's the formalities done. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much, Yuki. It's been, it's been wonderful. I'm sure people will love to uh, thank listen you. to this. I had a good time. Love Hope it. to see you at the festival next year. You certainly will. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>